My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, Samuel Katz. He's a New York-based, New York Times best-selling author, magazine editor, and special feature correspondent. He's written over 30 books and articles for publication around the world, including editions of Vanity Fair, Esquire, and GQ. He was the founder and editor-in-chief of Special Operations Report, a quarterly magazine dedicated to military and law enforcement special operations and counterterrorism. He's appeared on numerous international television and radio networks and also lectures law enforcement agencies and military commands around the world. Katz is also an international business development, marketing, and media consultant for industries around the world. With the recent passing of September 11th, tonight we're going to talk about another terrorist attack that almost was, Jihad in Brooklyn. Welcome. How are you, Sam? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I got a hold of you because I wanted to talk about this story because I think it's a very... Uh, lesser known attack that was going to happen on New York. I think that a lot of people, when they think about the terrorist attacks, of course, 9-11 comes to their mind. Of course, some of the bombings uh, that happened in New York City, uh, the USS Cole. But this one uh, is not really at the forefront of people's mind. And it's so interesting how not only it almost happened, but all the characters, how they came together and ultimately who came to the aid of the United States government and the United States themselves. It was a, it was a very interesting person. So if we can, can we get a little backstory on Jihad in Brooklyn? Sure. Well, um, the attack that was planned was going to be the first suicide bombing ever perpetrated in the United States. Um, and it was foiled by law enforcement and by a very strange set of circumstances. But I think it's important to kind of um, set the stage for what um, New York City was like at the time, um, in both in terms of law enforcement and um, the war on terror or the terror war against um, the United States. Um, New York was and forever is the epicenter of the world in terms of people from all over the planet coming here. You have every, um, every culture um, and ethnic group known to man um, that is in the city. And during the war in Afghanistan, um, the city was used by elements of this government to recruit individuals from the Middle East who wanted to travel to Afghanistan and fight the good fight against the Soviet Union. And um, individuals um, that were recruited um, for that struggle um, carried very jihadist um, views um, motivated by um, the, the call to arms in Afghanistan. And slowly New York City began to be host to terrorist incidents, um, terror plots. There was the 1990 assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahana um, by um, an Egyptian El Sayed Nasser. Um, individuals that um, protested Nasser's innocence at, um, at the trial 
were a later part of the cell that was responsible for the bombing of the World Trade Center. That cell and the, um, the blind Egyptian sheikh that um, rallied um, the locals was behind a plot to blow up the United Nations and government buildings in New York. So New York City was already um, well, well on its way to becoming a quote-unquote ground zero in the war on terror. And law enforcement, the New York City Police Department in particular, um, was aware of this and, and developed certain skills and um, understanding that they were a target. Um, you also need to un uh, know that New York, besides being the epicenter of the world, also hosts um, every September the United Nations General Assembly, as it's doing now, world leaders from every country on the planet come here. And um, the local law enforcement in, in working with the feds are um, were well in tune in the 19, early 1990s. At the same time that the, um, all these events are happening, New York City has cleaned up. Um, Rudy Giuliani came in as a law enforcement mayor, and Rudy Giuliani helped bring crime down and helps launch a renaissance of the city. But because whatever happens around the world also happens in New York City, um, there was an intifada going on in Israel, an uprising. And an uprising, in this case, that was characterized by suicide bombings, the bombings of buses and cafes, and individuals who would seek to perpetrate catastrophic damage on innocent civilians. And the, the lines were drawn in New York City, um, if you were a supporter of Israel, um, these were crimes that were absolutely abhorrent. And if you were um, uh, pro the other side, um, they were freedom fighters. And in this underground of immigrants, uh, communities that existed in New York, um, it attracted individuals from the West Bank and Gaza and from Jordan and Lebanon and elsewhere, where they um, people wanted a better life, people wanted to make a fast buck, and people wanted just to escape um, the violence. And they were, um, I wouldn't say illegal, um, an illegal underground of illegal workers that existed in New York. But if you didn't have papers in New York, you could easily find a place to live, uh, people who would support you. And there were um, no shortage of flop houses and illegal structures that landlords would put up where they could charge Injuries that didn't have their proper um, legal status uh, as much as they could um, for a room or an apartment by the day or the week or the month. And into this equation comes two Palestinians from the West Bank. Um, they had both had run-ins with the Israeli security services. But then again, virtually everybody would have had run-ins with the Israeli security services um, because of the intifada and the, um, and the campaign of suicide bombings that followed the return of um, Yasser Arafat to Gaza and the West Bank as, as part of the Oslo Accords. And New York City found itself in a very um, uncomfortable situation of one evening um, forced to encounter the threat of what would have been the first suicide bombing in New York City and um, what would have undoubtedly been a catastrophic attack resulting in hundreds of dead, 
and that was um, uh, a twin suicide bombing of a subway train as it traveled from Brooklyn into Manhattan. Now, I'd like to point out that this also was going to be uh, a special kind of suicide bombing. They were they were going to enact a new way in where a bomb went off. Uh, they got whoever they were going to get in that epicenter of it. Then when the first responders came in to take care of the, the victims or, or get uh, chaos controlled into it, a second bomb would go off. And, yes, and- um, the tactic um, the Israelis called double tap um, was first used in January of 1995. Um, there was a um, cafe, a roadside stand where um, motorists and soldiers could buy snacks and cigarettes and and just just the quick thing um, on the highway. And two Palestinian bombers from the Islamic Jihad um, were well positioned. They were dressed as Israeli soldiers, and they carried kit bags with explosives. The first bomber with um, with his device set himself off among all the victims, and then once the first responders came, the second bomber set himself off. And it's one of the reasons why in Israel um, paramedics um, wore um, body armor and were armed. And it's also why um, in suicide bombings, um, the bomb squad in Israel, the EOD people, um, had tactical command. And the Israelis developed tactics in dealing with double taps and the whole tradecraft of suicide bombings, but again, we're talking about pre-9-11, when law enforcement in this country, let alone around the world, didn't talk. Yeah, they, right. And and here's, here's the interesting part to it, and I guess this is kind of the million-dollar question. I, I think a lot of people want to understand, with all of this going on in the West Bank and, and everything that's going on, suicide bombings, the attacks, you see that happen, but then you see them leave from, from there, come to the United States, become radicalized either there or over here, and want to bring harm to the United States. And I think a lot of people have a tough time wrapping their brain around understanding it's happening over there. You're angry about who's being put into power. There's all kinds of power struggles going on over there, but you come over here to inflict harm and I think a lot of people don't understand why that happens. If you could explain some of the psychology behind that. Oh, if I could explain the psychology behind that, I'd be sitting um, in the halls of power in Washington. Um, both, both, so um, there were two Palestinian men, one Ghazi Abu Mazer, who um, um, came to the United States via Canada, via the, um, through the Pacific Northwest, Um, He was stopped in Washington state. He was apprehended. He failed to show for his um, desk ticket to plead his case, and he made his way to New York. And the second, Lafi Khalil, um, had a um, transit visa, and the um, agent at, at customs mistook it for an entry visa. And he was allowed to enter the United States, um, they came to they, they came to New York, both of them, and they ended up in um, a neighborhood which, at the time, in in, in Brooklyn, there are many uh, Middle Eastern communities in Brooklyn, 
And um, they ended up in a part of Brooklyn in Park Slope that at the time was um, run down and um, as yet to be gentrified, uh, which of course today it's one of the more exclusive parts of, of Brooklyn, but that just goes to show that this was 1997. Right. And, um, and New York City has changed um, incredibly. Same with the Bronx, right? Where they went through and they revitalized, where they sold blocks of the Bronx for, uh, uh, excuse me, of Harlem for like a dollar. And um, yeah, they were selling they were selling brownstones in 1995 in um, in Harlem, um, dilapidated brownstones right. for ten thousand um, dollars. It's yours, to, you know, pay and take. And today they're worth three four million dollars. And I know a lot of police officers who worked in Harlem at the time who um, are kicking themselves in the head <laughs> that they didn't, um, they didn't make that investment. But the city wasn't great at the time. It was um, who knew that it would become. Right. Absolutely. Um, so going back to your question about the psychology of both men, um, there's no evidence that either that there was a um, insidious plot. Okay. There's no evidence that they were members of any organization, hardcore members. But of course, you didn't have to be. If um, uh, Ghazi Abu Mazer spent time in, um, in an Israeli um, jail or in military detention, um, there were all sorts of reasons why individuals would be. Um, I'm sure that the situation there wasn't pleasant. It might have hardened him. He was obviously, of the two, he was the leader. And um, it's never known, it's still not known, if they were part of some horrific plot, um, the first seeds of Hamas um, trying to bring suicide bombings to the United States, or if they were using their homegrown knowledge, um, what they learned on the streets. And again, this, the knowledge of building explosives um, was common among the young uh, men in the West Bank who were fighting Israel and um, lining up to um, join one group or another to martyr themselves. Um, these were, you know, this was not um, splitting the atom. Um, the, the explosive knowledge um, in terms of building homemade explosives was fairly well known. And they worked at odd jobs here. They, um, you know, they looked at um, adult magazines in the local newsstand back when we still had newsstands. And um, they were looking for women. They were looking, they weren't the hardcore jihadists. They weren't um, devout in the sense of the 9-11 hijackers, okay. for example. And they traveled um, to North Carolina, for example, doing odd jobs um, at someone's grocery store. And they um, became somewhat infatuated with firearms and the readily uh, the, the ready availability of firearms, and they lived in a flop house um, uh, behind Fourth and President Street, that from the street was invisible. I mean, unless they broke the law, um, unless someone could identify them as being illegal, they could have lived here for years and and have never come to anyone's attention. So th and, that would be my first question, just to kind of get in here for it. With with uh, Mazer, he was caught three times at the border. Now, there, 
I believe that these two couldn't have met up in New York in stranger circumstances or by any um, more different means than they did. You talked about uh, him going to Canada. He had come down, tried to get through. He was apprehended three times by Immigration and Naturalization Services at at different points for different reasons. Uh, He gave different reasons why he was moving through there. Now, there wasn't, as you said, there wasn't any uh, known right now insidious plots with them. He had gotten in trouble, though, with the law for credit card fraud. He had an assault. Uh, He had been in trouble in the West Bank. And so he has a purpose, though, that you put throughout the book that he is bound to determine to get into the United States no matter what it takes. And then when you go to uh, Khalil, uh, you see that him coming here, he kind of just slid in under the radar. Um, and they they have different purposes, but they both seem to have the same end game. Would that be a fair assumption of the book? Um, Ghazi Abumazer was the bad seed among the two. And the um, he was more of the individual who you could see would rally someone to do something stupid. Um, Lafi Khalil was the lesser intelligent, if that could be um, assessed, of of the two of them, and. It's, it's very common for people who are living illegally to seek out their own and to, you go to a local restaurant or grocery store and people put, um, you know, paper on the wall, um, needed a handyman, needed um, contractor, um, needed dishwasher. And um, an entire underground um, universe existed. And again, before 9-11 and um, Patriot Act and all sorts of things, it was incredibly easy for individuals to just disappear here, especially in New York. If you didn't um, jump the turnstile, if you didn't litter, jaywalk, or do something that under Giuliani, um, the cops were very proactive, if you didn't graffiti or urinate on the subway, um, you could really go under the radar. And... They um, they were successful at it, but they had um, somewhere, somehow, they convinced themselves that they were going to matter. And I think that that's something that um, is important here because the people in the West Bank at the time who were rock stars, who were celebrities, were the martyrs the suicide bombers, the people who the Israelis had killed or had killed themselves or were in prison. If you went into a refugee camp or if you went into the main main streets in Nablus or Janine or Tulkarm, wherever, the photos of these people were all over. They were on billboards. They were worshipped as, um, as heroes of the cause. And that was, that was part of the psychological game how the terrorist entities recruited new members. Um, someone from the Israeli Secret Service once once told me how difficult it was to, dis- to, to interrogate these individuals from Hamas and the Islamic Jihad as opposed to the other groups. And they had already come to the conclusion that they had um, 
one step in paradise and one step in prison, uh, one foot in prison, one foot in paradise. So really, what was the interrogator ever going to do? And it hardened them. It hardened their resolve, and it made them um, very determined. So I, I don't think that at the time in this country, certainly at the local level, that mentality was understood. And I, I still believe after 20 years of a global war on terror, we're talking about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we still don't understand that mindset. And we still don't understand the hearts and minds and that the religious aspect um, is often second to other elements that we fail to look into or understand. Well, when these two first started, uh, you write in the book that they really weren't that religious uh, in the beginning. Yeah. They they had gone to a mosque. They went and prayed on on Fridays uh, mostly, but they they got into it a little more. Now, this mosque, though, in particular. Uh, becomes a problem over and over. The Al Farouk Mosque. Um, the Al Farouk Mosque was um, used as a transit point um, for um, people um, going to become the Afghan Arabs. Um, it was used by the CIA and, and others to help facilitate transit during the war in Afghanistan. The first war. Uh, well, it's not the first one they've been fighting since the 1800s <laughs> right. um, against empires that were foreign. Um, it was used to recruit individuals who wanted to go um, on their summer vacation and kill Soviets. And individuals that were part of the uh, separate plot, um, the World Trade Center and Rabbi Kahane and the Day of Terror, were all part of that, that network. They would take leave from their jobs as limo drivers and, and and other things, and they would go and they'd come back after um, they surviving some combat. They would learn skills and and they would return. Um, they couldn't really go back to visit their own countries because in many ways they were persona non grata in their own countries. Um, one of the things how all this ultimately evolved, 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, was that when the war in Afghanistan began and it became a rallying point, um, many Arab countries emptied their prisons of Islamic extremists and they shipped them off to Afghanistan. And that became a very potent force that um, became transnational. So how does something like that happen, though? You say that, that these countries empty out their prisons and they move them. Is it just <laughs> they just take them to the border and tell them, get out or i mean how does that happen without and i understand the government is fractured and everything but how does something like that with mass uh exoduses of people into the country how does that they're even not, happen they're not really mass exoduses they're more of um you know um your sentence here for life um will set you free i mean Ayman Zawahiri, the current leader of al-qaeda was in an egyptian prison until he was released he was in an egyptian prison for being part of the Muslim Brotherhood plot that assassinated President Sadat in 1981. And so if you were to take, because you say it's not mass, so if you were to take a guess, what are we talking about? Like how, how many people are we saying when this Thousands ultimately went. Thousands. Thousands. 
Okay. Um, people that um, to get to get to Afghanistan back then um, required a one-way ticket um, to um, to Pakistan. And the Pakistanis were more than happy to facilitate their arrival because the Pakistani intelligence service was using the Afghan Arabs um, to have a say in the future of Afghanistan because Afghanistan, again, going back to history, is a, um, is a vital buffer um, between outside powers and India and Pakistan. And it's, um, it remains, uh, I mean, the Pakistanis, our allies, remain um, the most potent supporters of the Taliban today. So it, it was a perfect storm the 20 years before 9-11 and the 20 years since. And these two young Palestinians, um, again, the motivation is still a mystery. But one of the things why some individuals blow themselves up is for relevance. It's for the promise of paradise. It's for the promise of making a difference. It's for the it's for the purpose of mattering. And if you were a Palestinian living illegally in New York, going from odd job to odd job, um, the sense of doing something stupid and heinous um, that will secure your um, relevance later on in life um, is, is in their eyes worth dying for. Well, you, you mentioned in there that in the book where you talk about when they were working these odd jobs, that they would talk to the bosses at these jobs a lot about how poor they were, they were, um, about how much they, they didn't have, but you pointed out a, uh, and I've said it before, you pointed out a clear distinction between the two. Khalil was only interested in finding a woman and Mazer was only wanted money. Um, and you saw that a lot when you talk about Khalil and going down to, at that time, Times Square, spending a lot of his work money on strip clubs and, and going out to bars. And then uh, Mazer not really doing that. But they all seem to come back to that mosque. Now, another problem with that mosque was uh, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, uh, who was asked to leave in 1991 after he had uh, anti-American rhetoric. So we see that that's already starting to build up there. So I, I guess I'm not understanding with the CIA using it, with with there being that, that clear distinction between the two, almost that dichotomy between the two, how do those two worlds collide together? Well, um, you have to go to the timeline. I apologize for the thunder. <laughs> well, I don't um, think you can slow that down, so... In the background, um, in the 80s, the Al-Farouk Mosque was the CIA transit point. And then when the Soviets left, there was no need to send these people overseas. So the Al-Farouk Mosque um, stopped being a transit point, but it was still a very, um, a very popular um, um, radical um, location. The preachers were there. Um, Individual... I think the, the, the underground universe that exists needs to be understood. Um, the, the emigre, the illegal, um, the first generations, even the people who are established here, 
they raise money for the old country, wherever that old country would be. And radicals raised money here. Radicals came and gave lecture tours. They spoke. They came with um, hat in hand and they gave sermons in mosques. Um, uh, this country also had all sorts of freedoms that existed where you could say whatever the hell you wanted to say. So the Al-Farug mosque stopped being um, um, functional in terms of this country's interests. It remained a radical hub. But by 1995, the Sheikh and all the others are already um, guests of the government. So the focus kind of um, withered away, but um, the preaching didn't. And the preaching at the mosque at the time would have focused a lot on what went on in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. Again, look at the time period. In 1990, 1993, Oslo comes. Arafat comes back. There's talk of peace. Um, Hamas uses that um, that peace and the creation. Um, and, and there was a, a terrorist attack by a Jewish extremist in 1994 that gave Hamas its its um, its spark to launch suicide bombings. Um, the suicide bombings helped bring about um, political turmoil in Israel that um, ultimately um, resulted in Israeli Prime Minister Rabin being assassinated. After the assassination, the Israelis killed the master Hamas bomb builder. There were um, reprisal um, suicide bombings, buses, cafes, children's birthday parties. So in the mosque where um, the one... Palestinian who was interested in, um, in women and the other who was interested in money um, would come with um, their aspirations unfulfilled and they would hear the, um, the sermons and they would be with individuals like themselves and individuals who might have been better off, might have been more successful, might have grabbed a piece of the American dream. And I think personally that their motive was wanting to be relevant. And the interesting chain of events that happened that night in July of 1997 might not have happened had um, there not been the day before a horrific suicide bombing in, um, in Jerusalem that left um, close to 20 dead and scores more wounded in the market when two Palestinian bombers um, dressed as attorneys um, perpetrated a, um, a double-tap suicide bombing. And that was an event that was in the news. Um, again, it's before that the 24-7 news cycle um, dominates everything and before social media where everybody would look at it on their phone. Um, but individuals who were on the job we're aware of it because um, uh, the attack that happened at two o'clock in the afternoon in Israel would have been in, um, at, at seven in the morning local time, and it would have been in the news, even if it's just a brief snippet. So when um, when the two Palestinians who were building a bomb in this illegal structure um, were talking about Jerusalem and that they would um, mimic that um, that event, uh, 
Um, another piece of the puzzle, um, an Egyptian that was living there, who came to catch the American dream in all its splendor and glory, um, got really nervous because where he comes from in Egypt, um, if you were part of a conspiracy, if you were part of um, a plot, even if there is a slight insinuation that you might have been living on the same street. That's what I was going to say, that even if they think that you're part of it. The Secret Service in Egypt, the Muhabarat, not only takes you for questioning, and again, um, the questioning would need to be in italics, um, but they take your wife and your kids. And um, when I was in Egypt um, before 9-11, um, an Egyptian security said, um, you know, what's the difference between being in prison in Egypt in the year 1300 and in 2000? And the answer was, um, now you get a plastic bucket to shit in. I guess so, that's being honest. Being very honest. I mean, so um, this individual, this Egyptian, um, wanted to bring his family over. He wanted to... He wanted to do everything that was right. The problem was that um, he, he knew nothing about how to report a crime. He spoke almost no English. And when they were in their room in this um, building, this walk-up in um, an illegal structure in, in Brooklyn, um, working on their bombs, um, and they said, "Did you see? You know, did you see what happened in Jerusalem today? You know, we're going to do, um, we're going to do that today on the subway." Um, he freaked, and a perfect storm followed, um, but it was a perfect storm not in destruction, but in all the things that could have gone wrong went right. The Egyptian um, flagged down two, um, two police officers from the Long Island Railroad Police, who um, there was a, um, a commuter rail stop in a hub in Brooklyn, um, Atlantic. It's now, it's part near the Barclays Center. It's now um, in the epicenter of gentrified Brooklyn, but at the time it was a sleepy train station and these two officers were, were patrolling and he was just, this Egyptian was yelling, boom, boom. Um, he was all agitated, nervous, and they could very well have um, treated him like he was emotionally disturbed. They could have easily dismissed him as um, as a nutcase, or they could have told him just to go um, disappear. How many times have cops not wanted to be bothered? But they saw they saw merit in his panic, and they took him to um, the precinct, the NYPD precinct, and they um, they brought him to the detective squad, and the detectives saw that um, they were incredibly nervous and agitated that he was the Egyptian, and they, f they summoned an Arabic-speaking individual. And that Arabic-speaking um, Arabic, um, police, Arabic police officer um, then said that there's a bomb plot going on. So you have what happened in Jerusalem in the morning. You have um, this individual, and there was merit into, in his... Um, in his panic and his fear, and there was dread that what happens if he's right and we ignore him. So the wheels of 
of the NYPD um, went into full gear. Again, this is very late at night, so this is the midnight tour. When um, the emergency service unit, which is the NYPD's um, rescue and tactical unit, um, has a much smaller footprint um, than it would during the morning or um, the evening tours. Um, there was a, uh, there was a, the, um, the chief on call um, at the time happened to be a, um, uh, a former um, Marine, a military man, um, came from the housing police before they merged. And he called his, um, his counterpart um, in special operations. And together um, they arrived at the precinct and they um, made sure that the informants drew out a sketch and mapped everything out. And they had to do, um, you know, they had to figure out what's going on here. Um, um, there are no acceptable losses in law enforcement, one of the officers in the raid said. Um, you know, we don't go up against suicide bombers. It's not part of our um, job description. Um, well, and you got to think at this time, too, like you said, this is new to law enforcement, too. I mean, that is that is strictly a military tactic. And even at that time, we're not even in the war on terror yet. So that's not even really a military thing yet. It's not a military thing. And there's also, and again, as, as a police officer would think, what happens if the um, informant is wrong? What happens if he is a psycho? What happens if they kick down the door and um, there's a shooting? And what happens if the individuals are innocent? What happens if you catch them in the middle of having dinner, having breakfast? Um, but there was also concern, what if the bomb was real? How big was it? Um, was it big enough to topple the building? If the building collapsed, would it go down into um, and sever the gas lines? Would it cause an enormous fire? Would it, would it collapse into the subway tunnel that was underneath the house? So um, slowly and without setting off any alarms, um, Con Ed, the, um, the utilities, had to be informed. The subway had to be shut down. And these things are not easy to do on a perfect day. Um, imagine doing it at midnight where, um, you know, the, the tug of war and the, um, and the shouting match that exists between um, supervisors who really want to just sleep on the couch that night and hope that it's quiet and nobody's going to bother them, um, all of a sudden they're facing an enormous citywide emergency, something absolutely catastrophic. Again, this is four years after the World Trade Center was bombed. So it's not something that's new to the vernacular. Um, there's um, uh, the, the detectives um, in unmarked cars drive by the location and they don't see the diagram. They don't see the building because it's behind the building. Right. Uh, so there's all sorts of worries. Um, the officers are, are themselves, the assault team, the tactical team, the supervisor and the, um, and the captain, um, the XO of the emergency service unit, um, are all worried um, about their careers, their pensions. You know, they're worried that um, this could be a disaster, this could be career ending, let alone life ending. 
and they they really um, you know have concerns that police in this country never had to deal with before. They enter the location around four o'clock in the morning, um, and um, they kick. You know, they go into the vestibule of the building and they don't see anything. They begin to get angry, and then they're led behind the building to the main structure. They're given the key from the informant. They enter it and they confront the two Palestinians in their bedroom, and the Palestinians resist. And each is shot three times. Um, they um, the injuries aren't life threatening. And the um, the perpetrators are, are are taken into custody, and then taken into um, the hospital for treatment. But you have to raid all the other apartments because you don't know how far feature, far reaching this plot is. So the individual, the um, tactical team had to go in and raid every location. And one of the um, officers that was involved remembers looking up from his vantage point, he was out with the shotgun in front of the building and all the window shades would open after they heard the tumult and individuals in Middle Eastern garb would look out the window and you heard um, Middle Eastern music and you heard Middle East, uh, Arabic being spoken and you heard and you smelled the smells of uh, Middle Eastern cooking. It was like being in another country, but you were um, in the center of Brooklyn. Um, once they're in custody, you have to um, disarm the devices. The federal authorities come, come involved. There's a joint terrorism task force that was formed after um, the Warren Trade Center bombing. Um, the agent that was on call that night was um, from the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service. Um, he had some worldly knowledge, and he interviewed the suspects um, um, from their hospital beds. The FBI um, came to look at the devices. Now, when the um, ESU um, officers raided the location, um, Ghazi Abu Mazer flipped the toggle switch on the device. He was ready to blow himself up. And Ghazi Abu Mazer wasn't a large individual, and the members of the assault team that um, went into the room were. And even after being shot, he wanted to blow himself up. He still wanted to matter. Um, but the device didn't go off. And what's interesting is that the FBI recreated the devices, and every time they flipped the toggle switch in simulation, it went off. So it was a perfect storm that everything that could have gone wrong went right that night for law enforcement. So let me ask you something about that, because uh, when they do that raid, and, and when we're done with this, I'd like to go back and talk about that informant for a minute, but... When they do the raid and, and he decides, because he tells them in his uh, interview that he did want to blow himself up, he mentioned that there were four switches. Um, and when all four switches were flipped, that's when it would when it would go off. He explained where the gunpowder came from. He said everything. So if he's leading this and, and they are pretty aware that he's going to be the leader of this group, um, what are they asking Khalil about? The same thing. Why? Um, what's your network support? The, um, there had not been um, in New York City, um, or nothing that has been revealed to date, um, known Hamas cells uh, 
direct action cells. Um, there had been members of um, Palestinian terrorist groups in the U.S. before. Um, there's an infamous case of someone um, from the Abu Nidal organization in St. Louis who um, the FBI bugged his house and he was caught on tape murdering his daughter because she wanted to be an American and not Palestinian. And that ultimately led to his arrest. But there was no known Hamas cell, um, Islamic Jihad, Palestinian Islamic Jihad cell operating in the U.S. at the time. But let me just backtrack a second because um, what would have been of concern to the um, um, FBI was the fact that in 1997, um, there had already been an established very strong nexus between um, Hamas and the Islamic Jihad and, um, and elements in the United States. There were charities, ultimately closed after 9-11, that raised money for Hamas that were used to buy explosives and weapons and support the families of individuals in prison. There was an individual in Florida um, who raised money for the Islamic Jihad, and he was um, very well-known in political circles. And there was a professor at the University of South Florida in Tampa, um, Dr. Shala, who, after the head of the Islamic Jihad was assassinated, allegedly, by the Mossad in 1995, simply walked out on his job in Florida, went to Damascus, and became the head of the Islamic Jihad terrorist group. So the connection, and if you want to connect the dots in hindsight, um, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence, but nothing specific that linked these two to um, to any dangerous nefarious cell that was funded, operational, and poised to strike. But Metzer, uh, he um, he agreed that he was Hamas, correct? During his interview, he did. Um, but again, it's like saying I'm uh, I like the Philadelphia Eagles. Okay. Um, uh, to survive. Um, and to survive in prison or in detention in the West Bank, regardless if you were in Israeli custody or Palestinian Authority custody, it pays to be part of an organization. Okay. They protect their own. And if you're a free spirit or a freelancer, um, your time behind bars might be less than pleasant. So I, I guess then with, with all of these unanswered questions, with, with not being really a, a, a match point for, you know, striking and getting these guys radicalized or what turned them over or what their ultimate goal was other than what you said about being relevant, it, it doesn't seem like the normal story you hear. There, there's always an end purpose, and I get what you're saying about being – uh, being known and the rock stars were the people that were the suicide bombers and things like that. But these guys seem to not really have a purpose in, in everything I read in the book, there wasn't anything that really said like, 
these guys are hardcore extremists other than the terrorist attack that was going to happen, but then they gave no reason behind it. What reason do you need to blow yourself up? What reason do you need to try and find um, a meaning to your life in death? And I, 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 I get what you're saying there, but they weren't just going to kill themselves. They were going to make an incident where they took out, he specifically said he picked that train at that time because it was loaded with Jews. Yes. And um, because if you kill yourself, if you jump off the 59th Street Bridge, um, you haven't done anything right. to make yourself relevant. Um, but they think in terms of, um, which is one of the reasons why they all um, have the photos taken holding the Quran and their um, assault rifle behind the backdrop. It's why they do their living wills on videotape. Um, you want the message to resonate after you're dead. You want that message. Well, they don't want, their recruiters want, the masterminds want. The masterminds don't blow themselves up, of course. Um, you find stooges who will do that for you. But they want, they want the message of that bloodshed. And the more victims, the better. Um, the more Jewish victims at the time, even better than that. And um, this is long before um, the NYPD and other law enforcement agencies had, if you see something, say something. Um, it wasn't the type of thing where people could bomb the subway um, I doubt that if you left your bag on a train, um, it would be there for very long. It would, um, somebody would just walk away with it. 9-11 um, changed our perspective on everything, including that and including suspicious packages. But this was a different time. Um, they needed a statement that would um, do for their own needs what they felt couldn't be done in life. And couldn't be done in Israel because they wouldn't be really allowed back. Um, the Israelis, um, if, if they were apprehended and deported, um, it could very well be that they would be um, sent back to the West Bank to the Palestinian Authority, which um, wasn't what was in their plan. Um, they, they, wanted, they wanted something else, and they realized that they weren't getting it. And that was what radicalized them. Um, I, I, I spoke um, in Jordan to someone from the intelligence service. And who are the people from Jordan or elsewhere in the Middle East that were flocking to ISIS? It wasn't the poor son of the laborer. They were individuals that had university degrees. Wealthy. That had done something. Wealthy. That had done something with their lives, but couldn't do anything with their lives, if that makes sense. There was no jobs. There were no opportunities. There was really nothing. And um, uh, like the, um, you know, like the ad for the New York lottery, um, you got to be in it to win it. Um, if you want to be glorious, if you want to have power. Um, again, in the Middle East, people, the man on the street, in many cases, doesn't have power, doesn't have the opportunity, that American dream where anybody could go from rags to riches. And that creates something. 
Um, and if you add that with um, the manipulation of religion, um, the economic disparity between rich and poor, the tribal system, um, where um, the nepotism, all sorts of ills that um, we as a nation always try and fix, but in many ways are unfixable. Um, you, you end up with individuals that are hopeless. And these two um, happen to be hopeless idiots. They, um, they believe that this suicide bombing, this double tap, um, on a subway train would have brought them prominence. And they were right. Had they, um, had they succeeded, they could have killed hundreds of people. Um, I mean, look at the chaos, um, destruction of the seven, seven attacks in the London underground. How many people were killed? Um, the, and in the middle of a subway tunnel, that um, uh, is a hundred plus years old. Uh, it, it, it would have been packed with um, commuters. I mean, the death toll would have been staggering. Um, it would have been really, really horrible. And, and just um, it reminded me of something, but it's, it's very, very pertinent. Um, we're talking about um, 19, after 1995. 1995 is an important year because... Not only do you have on the fundamentalist Islamic side um, the Day of Terror, the landmarks case, the plan that was supposed to happen, you also have Oklahoma City. And in many cases, law enforcement sort of shifted their gear from um, overseas terrorism to homegrown terrorism. And there wasn't the focus that needed to be. And... Um, the connection wasn't made on, on multiple levels um, between what happened overseas and the um, immigrant population that was here. So when all of this <clears throat> domestic terrorism starts to happen, you, you talk about the federal bombing in Oklahoma City and, and you see the World Trade Center be bombed. And, and we see a lot of the things that people up until that time go, that happens over there, not over here. I don't think that a lot of the civilians or people that weren't in law enforcement or the intelligence services or anything like that understood the kind of wind of change that was coming through. Because would you agree that, that I, I think that at that point it was decided that this can happen over here or we can cause destruction over there too. So let's take the fight over there and not only destroy maybe our homeland, but take something else with us. Because if it happens over there, we're not going to really know about it. The, the normal person walking down the street is not going to know them. If they come to the United States and do it, their names will be infamous. They'll be known in the news. It'll be a worldwide news blurb. It won't if it happens in the West Bank. Uh, it probably won't if it happens in Topeka or in Des Moines or elsewhere. It happens in New York, where it's the center of the media universe, center of the, um, uh, going back to the Statue of Liberty, the center of immigration to this country, the center of the melting pot. 
So New York was ground zero um, for many, many individuals. It was always a target. Um, it will always remain a target. Because if you want to get um, lesser to extent now with everyone has a camera, um, a studio quality camera on their phone, and they can report live from the scene. But in 1997, 2001, um, where the media was headquartered mattered. And it, and it mattered in New York. So are you saying, because I want to understand you correctly, are you saying even today with everything that's happened in the world since then, since 2001, uh, since 9-11, even in Topeka, even in Des Moines, it's still not as, it doesn't cause a ripple? It absolutely causes a ripple. Um, but... Um, the global events, uh, terrorism is, uh, two things, terrorism is an evolving living creature. Um, the terrorists try and think of what they can get away with. Okay. And law enforcement is always fighting the last attack. Law enforcement is always playing catch up to it. Always catch up. Always. And, and that ultimately is, um, is the danger and the, um, and the equalizer in all this is intelligence. Because if you know that something's going to happen, you're not playing catch up. You're not responding. You're reacting. You are deterring. You are preempting. And, um, in today's world, um, I believe that um, you can perpetrate an attack anywhere and it will get media coverage and it will spread in ways that it couldn't spread um, in 1997 and it couldn't spread in 2001 on 9-11. So let me ask you then, since we're talking about that, in this case, we're in 1997, we have an informant come up and like you said, it was a perfect storm. The wheels turned quickly, everything got done and you're exactly right. Overnight, you're you're fighting uh, and even people wouldn't realize this, but an even greater bureaucracy at night because now you're waking people up. Now you're having to get people out of bed. So there's an even greater one. So I agree with you there, but it's interesting that in 1997, this happens on a, on a local level. I'm going to say that it's going to be a huge attack, but it's on a local level. And then you see when we move forward into 2001 and 9-11 on a national level, there has been discussions that there wasn't intelligence sharing between major uh, heads of departments, major um, organizations. So I don't know if you can tell, but what's the difference that we see this move so quickly and then we have such a larger scale attack happen where national, you know, could have known or intelligence could have shared information. What's the difference? Um, the difference is that um, before 9-11, um, we were blind. And we were blind because we didn't connect the dots and we didn't really speak. Um, terrorism was something that happened overseas. Therefore, the grace of God, go us, go them. Um, it's someone else's problem. 
we're too big, we're too strong. And I think that um, when we talk about the road to 9-11, because 9-11 didn't happen in a vacuum, that the success that law enforcement had in defeating um, the perpetrators of the World Trade Center bombing and foiling the day of terror attack um, gave individuals here a false set, sense of grandeur. We're too smart for you. We're too big. Um, you're never going to defeat us. And a year after um, the incident in Brooklyn, um, on which my book is um, covers, there are the um, embassy bombings in East Africa. Um, and what Al-Qaeda was doing was copying the playbook of Hezbollah. What Hamas was doing in suicide bombings was copying the playbook of Hezbollah. Um, the terrorists at the time, um, less so today because of the way that um, cell phones and everything can be intercepted, but the terrorists at the time networked. We didn't. Um, I was doing at the time um, of the attack in Brooklyn a lot of work with the NYPD's emergency service unit. And um, there were incidents, barricade individuals who had murdered their parents and were holding and had murdered a police officer and were holding the police at bay um, just north of New York City. And um, the local police department didn't contact the police department next door um, that had a peacekeeper armored car that could have rescued an officer who was shot and left to bleed to death in his vehicle because they chose to contact the NYPD. And it took several hours to get um, the armored personnel carrier that the NYPD had at the time to the location. Law enforcement didn't speak. Law enforcement, in many cases, is its own bureaucratic worst enemy. And... Um, there are numerous reasons, um, and I, I think you'd need someone much higher in the food chain than me to kind of address them from you know, the managerial level. But um, the good guys didn't network. Um, there, um, there were cases where they did. Um, in 1999, um, Algerian terrorists who kind of were part of the Al-Qaeda um, fraternity um, hijacked an Air France plane and um, wanted to crash it into the Eiffel Tower. And it was refueling in Marseille, and the, um, and the GIGN, the French um, Gendarmerie Counterterrorist Unit, stormed the aircraft. It was a brilliant operation that could have gone wrong in many ways. Um, and the French did send those individuals to Washington to speak um, and, and brief. Um, but... Um, you know, there were n numerous incidents that happened in Europe, that happened in Israel, where the good guys just didn't know how to share. There were uh, bits and pieces, but there was no information network. There was no way to share tradecraft, um, lessons learned. Um, in Europe, exchanges between law enforcement units and, and agencies were very, very common. Um, you could drive from one country to the other. In the U.S., um, departments and department um, bosses didn't want um, agencies traveling within the county. 
to a different jurisdiction. Well, and and that's what I was going to ask you. Do you think that is a they couldn't share or didn't know how to share or wouldn't share? All of the above. Okay. So do you think 9-11 changed all that? Or do you think we're still building that camaraderie? We're still building those networks. I don't know how much. Uh, I know that in certain states, um, um, agencies shared and they worked together. Um, the only way that you can tell if it's really working is in if that's used to prevent an attack or in the after-action report of an attack that's ongoing or an attack that failed to be um, noticed. And um, we're scratching our heads and wondering what went wrong. You would agree, though, that the attacks that are thwarted or that never happen, a lot of those don't see the light of day for anyone to know about. No. Um, I think that if we um, one day, I think that we'll be... um, unbelievably shocked how many active plots um, law enforcement uh, and primarily the intelligence community stopped. And I think many of them, it'll come out, were stopped overseas. And I think that um, the agencies um, from the intelligence side and the law enforcement side, um, the FBI, the um, Diplomatic Security Service, and the DEA that were all part of the war on terror overseas um, are owed um, salutes and accolades beyond what Absolutely. any of us can uh, can provide, because they they were the they were really the coal mines and the canaries of um, of being a front line um, in in sometimes very hostile locations, and um, I don't think that we. Um, understand the danger, the sacrifice, and the success that um, that because of them, um, many hundreds, if not thousands, were able to live normal lives without knowing that they were in the crosshairs. So we talked about playing playing catch up at all times. Is there ever a way that we get in front of the mule of this cart? That's only through intelligence. Um, it's only through understanding, um, um, understanding, and I think that recent events have um, have shed a little light on that. I think sometimes when you're so ultra focused on one threat emanating from one location, you lose sight of other threats. So, um, can you give an example? Um, I, I think that um, right-wing uh, extremists um, operating um, what happened in January 6th, um, mass shooting attacks in this country um, are examples of um, the war on terror provided law enforcement with a lot of the tools that it needs to fight. And I think that in some cases, focusing on terror of only the Middle Eastern variety um, let us kind of be in a position where we have to play catch up on the other. So variety. on domestic terrorism. On domestic terrorism. Okay. And, and I think that terrorism, um, does it matter um, to law enforcement? 
not the intelligence communities, not the people who are trying to get inside their cell phones and inside their social media, but to law enforcement. Um, if the um, person driving the U-Haul van with explosives uh, speaks Arabic or has a Southern drawl, it's how you stop that individual. There, there's, there's the, there are two elements here that are connected but separate. Intelligence is always the key. And um, part of intelligence, um, and I think we're going to sadly um, face a difficult period um, once the Taliban kind of um, uh, goes back to being the Taliban um, that we know and hate, um, that by us not having boots on the ground, and when I say boots, I don't mean soldiers, I mean um, intelligence, eyes and ears, that we will be blindsided. And I'll give you an example. Um, in 1994, um, as part of the Oslo Accords, the Israelis left the major cities in the West Bank. And they, in certain other areas of the West Bank, the Palestinians controlled um, the civil administration. The Israelis had a small security footprint. But in the cities where a lot of the plots and the plotters um, lived, the Israelis didn't have the eyes and ears of the intelligence officers doing their business. They had no, they had no or little leverage with um, the locals that they would recruit. The second Intifada begins in 2000. And by the summer of 2001, shortly before 9-11, the catastrophic suicide bombings begin. It culminates in March of 2002 when during Passover, a suicide bomber enters a hotel and goes into the ballroom where all these families are having their holiday dinner and blows themselves up. And Israel goes back into the West Bank. And that was the beginning of the end of the suicide bombings of the Intifada, not in as much that the Israelis killed or captured many of the terrorists, but because they had returned and set up networks that were lost. And they set up the technological elements that allowed them, as one person once told me, um, to know about plots before they were even hatched. And so... And uh are we talking about like the shin bet or what? The shin bet. Okay. So for people that may not know, can you kind of describe, because if you haven't heard of the shin bet, it's, it's uh, I, to me, it's like a, a CIA hopped up uh, a couple of degrees. So the, you can divide the Israeli intelligence community into three. You have the Mossad that is um, a foreign espionage and um, foreign S special operations. You have Amman, which is the military intelligence branch, and they also run agents or um, are concerned with counterterrorism, but also military capabilities of hostile states. And then you have the Shin Bet, which is the acronym of the General Security Service. And the Shin Bet is responsible for counterintelligence and counterterrorism. Um, they also have an element that protects the prime minister. So they have a small detachment that's um, similar to the Secret Service and the presidential detail. And the Shin Bet um, hunts spies and hunts terrorism. That's, that's what they do. They have Arabic speakers um, in, their, in their ranks. And because they, they were in, um, inside the West Bank and Gaza for many years, they had networks that were amazing in terms of knowing individuals, knowing the who, what, when, and where. 
and the the intelligence that they would glean from um, networks that they compromised, from cell phones, from all sorts of um, signal intelligence and electronic intelligence and and human intelligence, primarily human intelligence, um, were instrumental once they were able to kind of let the um, intifada peak in bringing it down to the point today where the only real attacks that the Palestinians perpetrate um, on the most part are either lone wolf, um, individuals who go on um, ramming attacks or stabbing attacks, or um, long distance rockets. And um, the whole notion of a suicide bombing cells and the business and infrastructure um, that's involved in that, the, um, the commanders, the money, the safe houses, the engineers, the transport, all of the documentation that needs to be forged, all, all that um, doesn't exist secretly. Um, there are individuals that have to help. You have to get forgers and, and, um, and all sorts. Of, you have to get um, security individuals to protect the safe houses. Um, that's not to say that the Shin Bet um, has been successful 100% of the time. Hamas and the others, and um, even the fledgling attempts by um, um, Al Qaeda and ISIS to do um, to attack inside Israel um, have not been successful. Um, but the Shin Bet has mastered this to a science, and the Shin Bet has also has a division that goes after Jewish extremists, just like here we would have right wing extreme extremism. And, um, and I think that moving forward, if there is a lesson, is that um, the ability of terrorists to carry out 9-11 attacks might not exist in that framework. Can you go into a little more detail? Because I'm um, kind of following you, but I want to make sure I am. With immigration being um, so closely guarded, Okay. In terms of access, in terms of being able to follow people, in terms of um, people who are known to the authorities, um, airport security that didn't exist before 9-11, that's now in place. It's, it's almost impossible to conceive that there would be multiple hijackings that would evade, um, that would evade the intelligence services like it did on 9-11. So let me play devil's advocate with you for a minute. You're you're exactly right with with the way the airport security is set up, with the way we follow people, with the Patriot Act, with all these things that are done. Like you said, I need to go back though to the playing catch up because now we've just rerouted how people come into the country. They might not come in through New York. They might not come in through Canada. They're going to come in through Mexico. We we've seen it with the crisis that's going on at the border right now with. Uh, people that aren't supposed to be coming across, uh, and and I'm talking, you know, uh, criminals, um, terrorists, things have, have come across the border there. We've just shifted where they're coming in. Do you think, I, I understand what you're saying, that big of an attack, but do you think it's just kind of evolving into another way to attack? Sure, um, and that's what ISIS did so successfully um, in Europe. Um, the Paris attacks in two, 2015. Um, 
I law enforcement, uh, from what I've seen, um, doesn't think along the lines of terrorists in terms of reaction, in terms of um, of. There's something in Israel. Um, I'll say the Hebrew, and then I'll, I'll um, that every unit that goes out on a mission does, and it's called migrimet betkuvot, which is um, happenings and reactions. Meaning that the commander will only approve a mission until he knows from his men what are they going to do if X, Y, and Z happens, and what happens if Z happens before X, and then X happens. They need to kind of know everything and, and predict and how they're going to react. Contingencies. And I think uh, contingencies, but they think in very far reaching because there, and it's not to take anything away from the United States or how we think here in this country, but they've had to rely on wits because um, they've had to do it for so long with so few resources. And I think here, um, the human element of trying to react and think and be prepared sometimes gets overlooked. And it's certainly in law enforcement, um, planning doesn't get the reward that acting does. Okay. I, I can see what you're saying. Um, with everything that happened with these guys, I think the most interesting part of it was when you say that they just wanted to be relevant to go back to our, our main story of this uh, conversation is they kind of ended up not being known. Like we talked about in the very beginning, this is a, well, the- a, a relatively unknown uh, story about a terrorist attack. And so the, the complete irony of, wanting to be relevant. And then when all this is done, one is put into a supermax prison. Uh, and then the other one serves some time, but I mean, really no one's heard of them. Well, uh, I don't think anyone cares about them, but, um, what we were talking about earlier of the good guys talking. Okay. And why bureaucracy, especially in law enforcement, sometimes gets in the way more than anything else. Um, this was an incident that should have been, that should be in the curriculum of every police academy in this country. Absolutely. Um, this, this should have been far more of a national incident than it was. But in this case, the police officers involved, um, were very concerned, um, on multiple levels. A, the FBI um, was hinting that, um, and even internal affairs, that it was a bad shooting because a bomb wasn't a gun. And that in shooting someone who flipped a bomb wasn't the same as someone pointing a weapon at you. Uh, I, I would have bus- to as, disagree with that. but I think we all disagree, but this is what the officers faced. Right. The officers the morning after, after they had been debriefed and after they had their, um, their PBA, their police benevolence, their union lawyers sit with them um, and they went home, um, they didn't know what they had stumbled upon. Was this the opening salvo of a terrorist war in New York? Um, would there be repercussions against them? 
lo and behold, um, they wanted to keep their names secret, but lo and behold, the New York City um, Police Department releases their names and photos to the newspapers. Now they're worried about their families. The mayor at the time, Giuliani, wanted very much to use the officers as a political backdrop. He wanted to have the press conference at um, City Hall and milk it for all it was worth. Um, the police officers involved wanted nothing um, to do with it. They wanted um, anonymity. They feared for their lives and their families. Um, Rightly so. And there was a, a back and forth between City Hall, the police headquarters, one police plaza, and the officers and their union delegates. Um um, what they would do um, at this press conference. They were ordered to appear. They didn't want to appear. Um, according to the officers who were there, and they told me, and I put it in the book, the police commissioner at the time, Howard Safer, threatened um, to disband the emergency service unit if these individuals um, didn't play along. Um, now, mind you, this is four years before 9-11. Right. And 14 members of the emergency service unit perished on that day. Um, these were not men to dangle um, threats to. These were real heroes. Absolutely. These were, these were tactical officers who, um, part of their rescue package, part of their um, job description was rescues. They were lifesavers. So... Um, there were all sorts of inner workings in the NYPD, and the NYPD can be a political beast if it wants to. I think that's every major metropolitan police department. So the story was um, ultimately crushed. Um, the police department didn't want to um, submit the um, officers involved to the Top Cops Award. Ultimately it was, and they received it, but there was an effort to kind of shush it down. And the good guys didn't talk. And um, um, I've, I, I speak about this incident to command-level um, law enforcement. Um, and I've spoken to it at the command level of the MTA police, which is the um, Metropolitan Transit Authority here in New York. And the two officers that initially came upon um, the informant were Long Island Railroad cops that eventually, they eventually merged another, into another department into the MTA. And young officers aren't familiar with this case. I spoke for the, to the Transit Bureau, um, the NYPD's Transit Bureau, and there are officers who aren't familiar with this case. And I think on a basic patrolman level, reactionary on a tactical level, and also command level, um, what went right that evening needs to be studied and it needs to be discussed. And I think that in many ways, sadly, um, law enforcement is often um, um, a stumbling block to itself and it doesn't get the message out as it should. And this is one instance. I, I agree, but I think that there are ways that law enforcement can get that out with also without compromising who's involved in it. 
There's all kinds of redaction ways that you can do that. But I, I believe, like you said, that this political machine is turning so hard that, that they need those bodies behind them. They don't need the story. They need the bodies behind them because it looks like support for that political cause. Absolutely. And I, and going back to kind of what we discussed, um, the political echelon um, didn't fathom the threat, the potential threat of having um, networks in this country that could maybe target the police officers. And the, the political level needs to be educated just as much, if not more, than the law enforcement level. I, I, about, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, interestingly enough, years, actually around the time of this raid, I, I did work in the Los Angeles Police Department with the LAPD SWAT. And they were doing a live fire hostage rescue um, training downtown. And the people who were playing hostage were judges. And the police department wanted the judges that would decide criminal cases to understand the dangers that they encounter. Some of the hostages were being played by politicians. I, I think that the educational level must be political because um, Policy and what happens in the streets drives politics, and the politics drives policy. It's a two-way street. And I think that in, in one of the tragedies of Afghanistan and other things is that history repeats itself. And we might find ourselves one day repeating a jihad in Brooklyn or a mass casualty event on the scale of a 9-11. It will be different, but it could be, it could be similar. And what lessons were learned from those horrible times and by the horrible intent and actions that could be used to be smarter, to be better, and to kind of not put the political end of it in the way of doing the right thing. And I think that um, law enforcement, and the NYPD in particular, um, is is dedicated um, to making good things happen out of bad. And they um, have resources now much more than after 9-11. And I think that all the facets, um, need, all the dots need to be connected in a municipality, in a county, in a state, and federally. And I think that throwing money at a problem isn't the sole solution. There needs to be um, brain power. There needs to be common sense. There needs to be pragmatism. There needs to be far-reaching vision. And there needs to be, most importantly, competence. So to wrap this whole story up, I, I want to go, because you've talked about it a lot, about taking the good from it. So what I want to do is the takeaways from the intelligence level, what was good on the takeaway from the intelligence level, the street patrol level, the command level, and then an overall kind of terrorism level? The terrorism level was that the threat was completely um, unknown. Um, and it was just circumstance. Um, the focus wasn't on Park Slope, Brooklyn. It was elsewhere. And it, 
these individuals were so under the radar that expecting the intelligence community to know anything about them um, would have been a reach. On the patrol level, um, on the law enforcement level as a whole, um, all the individuals involved acted um, above and beyond. Above and beyond um, in courage, above and beyond in professionalism, and above and beyond in just being plain human. Um, being a young police officer, a railroad cop in Brooklyn um, on the midnight tour is not easy work. It's not fun work. It's not where um, you go to retire. Um, and they could have just dismissed this individual. But they didn't. And they took him to a precinct and they made sure that he was seen. Um, the detectives who spoke to him, the Arab tr Arabic translator, and um, by all means, the, um, the chief, um, the captain, and the um, tactical team from ESU, they risked everything to try. And they knew uh, ESU is part of its package, does rescues, and there have been subway derailments. And, um, and they, they were the ones who responded to the first World Trade Center bombing. They knew the devastation that this would cause, and they put themselves in harm's way, um, risking life and possible and all sorts of ramifications um, uh, in the legal system um, that could have gone against them had the information been wrong. Um, everything worked that should have. I would say that um, that is a positive takeaway the political elements that followed um, is positive in the way that the officers stood their ground. At the press conference that Giuliani wanted, the officers stood with their arms folded and their, um, their um, forearms covering their name tapes, and only the executive officer, Captain Ralph Pasculo, spoke with his name being identified. He, t he, he fell on the sword for the other guys. Um, and... Um, and they stood up to the political hubris. They, um, they didn't let it get them down. And, um, but they weren't rewarded uh, in a way that the NYPD usually rewards individuals that are in good, um, on good incidents, um, good shoots. Well, that was um, so that the NYPD could get their pound of flesh from them at, for, for the sheer embarrassment of not backing them up. It was payback. Yeah, And um, usually in a situation like, like that before 9-11, um, these police officers would have been given their gold detective shields right away. And it didn't happen. And I think that a lot of the officers, uh, organizations throughout New York City, um, um, cultural groups, civic groups, gave them medals, they had dinners for them. Um, they did the right thing. But the police department in the city didn't really do the right thing by them. And I think that was a lesson um, that should never be repeated. Um, there's always the um, desire by some in, in politics on both sides of the spectrum to use these, these men and women as pawns. And they're not pawns. They're a thin blue line that really stand between um, destruction and people um, going to bed at night and sleeping soundly. And I think that that needs to be a, um, a takeaway 
that on every level um, is not forgotten. I uh, I completely agree with you. I you don't hear that sentiment a lot anymore. I I think you you get the exact opposite of that anymore. And I think that uh, I saw someone post that they missed September 12th. And the reason they missed September 12th was because everyone came together. Everybody knew who the heroes were. Everyone knew what our focus was. And I, I think that especially after last summer in the law enforcement community, I think a lot of people have lost focus of what law enforcement is here for. I, I well, it, uh, it's 24 years since um, the jihad in Brooklyn. And um, there was a time when you'd have to open the newspaper to look for a story, whereas now you're bombarded with stories. Right. And um, I saw online someone posted um, the comments that some people make about, especially about um, law enforcement. And the, the society in many cases has been invaded by idiots. Whereas year, years ago, um, the ramblings of somebody would be heard at a bar or in a park corner, and then he would be told to, sh- or he would be, she would be told to shut up, and that would be it. Now they have platforms, and um, people that shouldn't be listened to are listened to, and common sense has all but dissipated into the abyss. And I think it's tragic, and I think um, that type of scenario opens us up for the lessons of a jihad in Brooklyn, of the lesson lessons that law enforcement in Europe learned battling ISIS, lessons that law enforcement in Israel learned battling Hamas and the Islamic Jihad and elsewhere. All those things get lost in the um, tidal wave of stupidity that we tend to be bombarded with. Well, speaking from a law enforcement point of view, we, we can't thank you enough for what you do, your writings about police, everything that you do to, to put that culture forward. You, you can't be thanked enough for that. I want well, to get into you your, I, I, well, and, and it, it's truly meant, I, I, we appreciate it so much because like we've both said, there's very few people. Um, I don't know if there's very few people, but there's a lot of silent people right now. Uh, and the squeaky wheel is kind of getting the oil right now. Hopefully that will change at some point, but let's talk about Samuel where people can go and find you and then tell them, I want to talk about your latest what you have coming out, what you have in the works, and where people can find your stuff. Um, My last book, um, uh, released um, in the middle of the pandemic, um, is No Shadows in the Desert. And it's the story of how the Jordanian GID, their intelligence service, and together with um, the coalition, the American-led coalition and the CIA, hunted down the leaders of ISIS and ultimately led to the military destruction of that organization. And the operation commenced in February of 2015 after um, a Jordanian F-16 pilot that was captured and shot um, by ISIS, his plane malfunctioned and he parachuted over the city of Raqqa, how he was captured and ultimately um, he was set ablaze, burnt alive in a Hollywood-like film extravaganza that ISIS um, blasted on social media. And that event, that barbarity, 
that cruelty of filming someone being burnt alive um, was a point of no return for King Abdullah, for Jordan, and for the moderate Arab world. And Jordan was one of the first um, nations to contribute forces into the war against ISIS, one of the leading nations. Um, they also sent forces um, in Afghanistan um, as well. But the, the Jordanian intelligence service became, in many ways, the human intelligence um, main ally of the CIA. They had act assets inside the tribal areas of Iraq um, and elsewhere. They understood the mentality. They had the native speakers. They had the real, real deal. And using human intelligence together with um, the CIA's um, massive signal and technological intelligence, they managed to um, make the individuals at the ISIS ruling council, the military commanders who gave the order to burn this pilot alive, they, they made sure that one by one they met with um, very explosive fates. And when the leadership was terminated, the ability of ISIS to maintain its military um, territory um, dissolved quite quickly. And it led to the, um, to the victory, the military victory at least, that we, um, that we can um, thank in the war against ISIS. Well, it sounds, uh, sounds amazing. I can't wait to get into that one. Uh, anything else that you want to promote? Uh, well, thank you. Um, if you visit the website, samuelkatzonline.com, you'll see previous books, how to order them. Um, there's also, um, for law enforcement, um, if they um, want to invite me as a speaker, there's a form to fill out. And um, if people have questions, um, there's an email um, um, form that they can fill out. And um, I usually respond. Um, I try and do it within 24 hours. It was so great for you to come on. This this book is absolutely fantastic. Um, people not knowing uh, this story and have not having heard it before to bring it to the forefront. Everyone needs to check it out. Plus your other books. I mean, you've written so much stuff, hundreds of articles, over 30 books. You're pretty much everywhere. You're on Kindle. You can find your stuff on Amazon. You can order it through your uh, website. I, I really want people to get out and check this guy out. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I appreciate it so much. And like I said, for everything that you do for law enforcement, for the kind of carrying the torch and letting people know what these guys are really out there doing every day. We can't say thank you enough to people like you. Uh, I think that's, I'm the one who, I'm the one who's honored. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I think that's going to be it for the show tonight, guys. If you want more of me, you can get me on Instagram at DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube, all the video versions of these conversations at the DTD podcast. Remember when you go on there, subscribe, leave a comment and uh, review us. It helps us grow. Remember the best stories are true. And if you want to hear them, you come here every week because we give them to you. That's going to be the show. That's Sam. I'm DJ. That's going to be it. We'll catch you the next time. Bye, guys.